Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. I'm joined again today by my friend and colleague, Josh Blank, director of research for the Texas Politics Project. With a week to go to Election Day, Josh, have you voted? I voted this morning. I woke up and I saw that it was freezing in Austin and it was rainy. And I thought, this is a good time to go vote. And I was correct. Even though the research is supposed to show that, right, that it, it's less than a point reduction in turnout overall, bad weather on Election Day. Isn't that right? Am I remembering that correctly? Well, that, that's true. The weather impact on elections is relatively small, but that's in, on the aggregate. We're not talking about Austin in particular. It says nothing about Austin. And I know how Austinites right. are about cold rain any sort the of mildly bad weather yeah like if it was overcast there might be a shorter line so right. well yeah, no. i'm glad you got that knocked out and um <laughs> did your bit for democracy so speaking of elections we thought that today we would rather than dwell on a drill down into one big topic although in some ways maybe one could see this this way that we we talk about a few things that are out in the ether we probably won't podcast again before the election. I think currently we're, we're slated to record for election day, but we're going to try to put that off by a couple of days so that we're not in that dead zone of recording something on election day and it being all anticipation and no results. And who needs that? Yeah. And also so to the gunshots and the, the gunshots. Right, yes. And the, and <laughs> yeah. The, the civil yeah, unrest. Just kidding. Um, right. Yeah, just kidding. Just joking about civil unrest and the collapse of democracy today, um, which we don't <laughs> think is going to happen. Uh, I don't Un- anyway. Very, um, very unlikely. Very perhaps unlikely. we could get to that. Very unlikely, exactly. Um, so we thought we today is we, we'd hit on a few of the topics that, you know, frankly, we're hearing about from press and reading about out there and, and getting asked about. And that are just generally hovering over the election. And so, you know, with an emphasis on what we're seeing in polling, but also what that tells us about the dynamics in the election. So uh, we thought we'd start today by talking about independence. And we did a blog post last week that decomposed independence in Texas to the nth degree you know, with a setup that we've talked about on the podcast before, the fact that as Texas is undeniably, I think, becoming more politically competitive uh, between the parties. And you'll note that that I did not say as Texas is turning whatever color, mm-hmm. but that as the state becomes more independent, that the, the just by very virtue of the, by the virtue of the math, independents are becoming more important. And as they become important, they look a little bit different in this election cycle. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, I, and I think just to, you know, quickly lay it out, I mean, ultimately, I mean, I think you're right. And what's funny, you know, we've sort of joked for, ye- I mean, I, I could actually, oh God, saying this, we've actually you, joked for years, <laughs> yes, about, years about about how unimportant independents are. 
and it's not really a joke. It was more of a fact, actually, than a joke. Because well, we the would, joke is how determined you were about it, and and right. how foul your affect was. Well, I was <laughs> just yeah. to bring that out. <laughs> sure, me per yeah. Well, about, again, about independence. Right. And this is, again, you know, we sort of set this up as, you know, these are some of the things that we're getting asked about. We get it. We used to get asked about independence all the time. There was sort of a, this road idea of like, well, what do independents think? Because independents are going to decide the election. And we would say, well, not in Texas, because in Texas, Republicans generally started with about a 10 point advantage and independents for the most part, you know, broke towards Republican candidates and Republican issues in general. So when you look at the attitudes of independence and what we're talking about when we talk about independence is we're talking about the approximately about 10% of the electorate that refuses to identify with either party, even having been asked twice, both whether they identify with the party and then even if they say no, whether they lean towards the party. And ultimately, this group is, you know, as we've, we've said, it's written, they're, also, they're defined kind of by their lack of engagement, their lack of interest. If you're one of those political independents who is really just super engaged and that's why you're independent, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the rest of the independents who aren't paying attention and who vacillate between positions and priorities and things like that. But ultimately, again, if, if the parties are, you know, if this is a competitive state, what that basically means in simple terms is that both parties can mobilize roughly similar numbers of voters for statewide elections. That's what we're talking about. So then ultimately, the, the attitudes of these independents become so important. The interesting thing that happened in our, in our most recent polling that's really, I think, very interesting. When people ask me now, you know, hey, what's one, what, what should I be looking at? What's interesting right now? This is one of the things I go to right away, which is that if you look at all, pretty much all of our polling up until 2018, and you look at our election polling, independents universally favored the Republican candidate in contests for president, governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general, for Senate races, for congressional trial ballots, for the Texas House, without fail. In 2018, that was true, except for the Senate race, in which case a majority of independents favored Beto O'Rourke over Ted Cruz. I think ultimately this contributed probably to that narrower margin. And when I say that narrower margin, I'm not just talking about the two and a half point Cruz win, but I'm talking about the two and a half point Cruz win relative to, you know, the more like five point wins of people like the Lieutenant Governor, uh, the Attorney General, kind of in that second range of candidates. Yeah, this the is Attorney General won that race, right? <laughs> yeah, I think so. He's still Okay, yeah. He yeah, was I was he indicted? By a bit. Yeah. Anyway, okay. But anyway, <laughs> so you know, that was sort of a big shift in that race. And it, and, it, and I think that was one of the big factors leading to a closer race than the others. What's interesting in our most recent polling now, again, that, you know, is having seen independents universally support Republican candidates, is that in this survey, independents preferred Joe Biden over Donald Trump. They preferred MJ Hager over John Cornyn. And they preferred Democrats on the congressional trial ballot. They preferred Democrats on the statewide, on the text-ledge trial ballot for, so for Texas House. And this is a this is a pretty big shift. It's not a doesn't indicate a permanent shift. And I want to make that clear. I don't think this means that all of a sudden independents are uh, now Texas Democrats. But what it shows is that, you know, one, it's possible. And also it's I think it's a further reflection of the competition we're seeing in Texas. Well, and I, you know, and I, I think, I think you probably think I go a bridge too far with this, but I'm going to do mm, it anyway, which is, which is that, I mean, I, I think it's also a function of the nature of independence that their attitudes as a group are just going to be less fixed, you know? And so, you know, it, it's, it seems plausible to me that you have a, as a group independence, there's going to be some significant subset of independents who don't pay a lot of attention to politics are absorbing some of the negative affect towards inco towards incumbent institutions, not necessarily mm -hmm. incumbent candidates, although maybe. And to, 
you know, and and found some appeal in Donald Trump's particular celebrity, his lack of political experience, his outsider campaign, etc. Now Trump is a known quantity. There's a lot of negative information about him in the ether. Mm-hmm. And they, there's no partisanship to prevent them from changing their minds. You know, I've been thinking about this in, in a, a similar way, but maybe slightly differently, which is I'm just – I'm thinking about the the role of rejection among independents. Ultimately, you know, you're an independent. You reject the parties. It seems to me that if you reject both parties, you have more incentive to reject the party in power than the party out of power. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so that's – I think that is – you know, so I agree with you. And I, I would just go – I think more about the idea of, again, you know, what are they rejecting right now? What they seem to be rejecting is Donald Trump's handling of, of the coronavirus. Yeah. So we saw this in our polling. Mm-hmm. But it's also – you know, it's coming up pretty consistently in most other polling as well, this independent preference for – Democrats. And as, and as I remember, I mean, it's not independent approval numbers aren't of Biden or not. No, he's less bad. Yeah, are, are not stellar. So it's, you know, I mean, so there's something like there's a certain, you know, I mean, there's a bit more, you know, I sometimes I jokingly use derogatory terms that I won't use at this time. But, you know, there's a more fluidity in, in independence evaluations of, of political figures and partisan figures that makes them unpredictable as a group and to the extent that we're now looking at them as perhaps a linchpin. Let me ask you this before we move on to the next thing. Yeah. And I, this is, this is just a math problem that we should do off mic, but you know, oh, is that I my love third doing thing math. today? I'm, I'm, I'm feeling super warmed up. So, do so if I was not to like say to you, okay, math problems in podcasts, I don't think we did. I know it's really, you know, I have a chalk in my hand. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I really don't. Um, But if you think about what the back of the envelope math does, you look at, you know, we think about turnout tendencies among independents. It's funny to me that we did that blog post and there's not in the end something that says, and so this shift looks like this percent. Well, I will, in our defense, there's a table. I've been saying two to four. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I mean, it depends. And, and you know, and here's the thing. You know, if we, we've been watching the early voting numbers really carefully. And, you know, the thing that's kind of notable so far in those numbers is the parity between, you know, clearly Democratic and clearly Republican voters, by which all I and all I mean by that is voters who have a, a Democratic, a consistent Democratic or a consistent Republican primary voting history. We know that you voted in these races. Ultimately, if you're someone who shows up for midterm primaries, you know, as well as presidential primaries, you're probably a member of that party. We've seen rough parity, but that's kind of why in some ways, you know, the group that we don't know about that's basically the other third, you know, of the early vote electorate right now is kind of unknown to us. And that's why I think these numbers are so interesting, right? But I I agree, like independence as a whole, what we're talking about here is we're talking about a shift of maybe, you know, you know, one, one to three points in Biden's favor. But ultimately, the question is, are you talking about from a baseline of plus nine for Trump? Or are you talking about a baseline of plus two and a half for the Republican at the top of the ticket? Because that makes a pretty big difference. Now, it's yeah. not the latter. It's not the latter because the latter, again, there's already a shift in, in place. Right. right. In other words, the, if, if you just looking at our polling, which now is a few weeks old, but, you know, we'll, and we're going to talk about the polling, maybe the polling in the last few days. Yeah. I mean, but if you it's baked into the movement from, say, nine down to four or five. Yeah. But there are still, you know, but that's where the unpredictability of independence comes in, because some of those independents are 
you know, more than uh, more than partisans are landing with some of the third party candidates and yeah. there's still a low single digits of them right. undecided. And they could all, you know, they could, there could be a lot of movement still. Or at least yeah. So. And the, well, and I would say, you know, as we talk about this, I think there's an argument to be made that, you know, the movement might even be bigger because ultimately, you know, what we're talking about is a detached group of people of whom some of them are going to show up. Right. So you're not usually someone yeah. who's detached from politics, but also a consistent voter. So right. we don't know who's going to show up. But if we think about who's likely to show up, it's probably, again, the people with stronger feelings of rejection towards whatever is going on right now. You know, I think on average are more likely to turn out than those who just kind of reject the whole thing, who don't like Biden, yeah. who don't like Trump. Uh, we need to, you so, know, we need to put that on the we need to put that on the writing list, the rejectionist independent hypothesis. We can work on that. I like it. But I mean, you know, just this will I always promise this will transition into the next one, I think. You know, but I think, you know, but the ultimate thing right now is because we're seeing such a competitive state, you know, we are talking about these kinds of margins. We're talking about, you know, does does Joe Biden do a couple, does he does he shift the final outcome by a couple points because independents have rejected Trump? Does he shift the final outcome by a point or two because of, you know, what turnout looks like in the suburbs, right? right. Does he shift it because of how he does with Hispanics or how he doesn't do with Hispanics? Does he not shift it as much? And these are the sorts of, I mean, ultimately when you're talking about, again, a competitive race, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about, you know, one and two point shifts amongst groups really in a state like Texas. And what we're talking about today actually is, you know, a few of those groups where those one or two points might be coming out. So let's, let's talk about Hispanics. So we, and this will, this will give us a, a, a way of talking a little bit about the polling in the last few days. So sure. just to recap, most people that if you, if you've made your way to listening to this, you probably know that, that since Sunday, there have been four polls released that collected data within the space of a couple weeks in the in the range of I don't have it right in front of me something between the 13th of October to about the 24th, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that I mean it depends on what you want to include in that list, but anywhere from the 11th to the 13th to the 20th to the 25th, so over about a two week right. period, ten right. day period. And they found pretty widely divergent results along, among Hispanics. They found pretty widely divergent results, although not as wide as among Hispanics. You know, there was a spread at the top lines that we can talk about, but to, let's start with talking about Hispanics because there was a big spread in the results on Hispanic preferences in the presidential race, which fed a very active and ongoing debate, which we talked a, a little bit about a few, few weeks ago with Mark Jones. Yeah, this is one of those things that, you know, I, I don't think, I mean, I, it'd be too strong to say it drives me crazy. Because that's, I wouldn't, you know, not a lot drives me crazy. This is probably too strong, but. It agitates you. you. Um, I guess. I guess <laughs> I've it seen agitates. you agitated about this. Well, you know, <laughs> I, yeah, I suppose so. I mean, I think what it is is that, you know, so we go and we have some polls come out and then all of a sudden, you know, you start to see some tweets and the tweets are like, you won't believe in, in this new poll, Joe Biden is only capturing the support of fill in the blank, 59% of Hispanics, 65% of Hispanics. 52% of his, whatever, right? Now, that doesn't mean that Donald Trump's- But consistently more than half. Consistently more than half, you know, but then the other side is, you know, Trump is, you know, not hemorrhaging support among Hispanics or Trump is doing well enough among Hispanics to keep competitive, taxes competitive. And the thing about these sort of, you know, again, these, these exclamations of surprise is that it's not based on anything. I mean, I mean, we've been we've been conducting polling here well, for a decade, and one of the things that sort of striking is based on something. <laughs> well, yeah, that's right. It's based on not knowing what you're talking about. So, I mean, we've been doing these polls here for a decade. We've been watching other people's polls here, you know, for at least that long. And you know, and I always say this: without fail, there's a floor of thirty percent of you know. I think the Hispanic registered voter pool, 
generally over this decade. And again, that, that could be shifting, right? But right now, who support Republicans? They support Republican policies. They support Republican candidates. You know, they, you know, for all intents they and identify purposes, as Republicans are Republican voters. Um, and, you know, and the truth is, I mean, this could get even more complicated because I like that kind of thing. But I mean, the question is, are we talking about people who like identify as Hispanic? Or what if we ask people after they identify as white or something else, whether they're Hispanic? Because then it even looks more conservative, that, that electorate. Actually, if you expand or, you know, make, I don't even know. Which in that, that particular scenario makes a lot of sense. But right. But ultimately, this is this is this is the case here. And so I think, you know, these expectations that especially Democrats seem to have are just not based in reality. And I think you know, what I always think is, is it seems as though Democrats seem to believe or or want to believe that Texas Hispanics are going to be a group that votes for Democrats, maybe not at the rates that African-Americans do, but maybe close. Right. So if African-Americans go for Democrats, you know, nine to one or more right? So 90% plus, you know, there's this idea that Hispanics should be a 70 or 80% democratic group. And that's just, that's just not the case. And really, you know, what makes the, you know, one of the factors, you know, along with independence that we just discussed, you know, that'll make an election more or less competitive in Texas kind of comes down to do Republicans get 30, 35, 40, 45% of the Hispanic vote? Because I mean, one of the things that people made a lot of a big deal about out of at the time in 2014 when Abbott won by 20 points over Wendy Davis was according to exit polling, which has a very wide margin of error, but gives us a sense. The exit polling said that he was received the support of 45% of Hispanics. Now that might sound crazy, except he won by 20 points. So it's not that crazy. And that's right. the thing I think that people sort of fail to appreciate is that the, the competition over the Hispanic electorate in Texas is a lot more fierce, I think, than, than people realize, at least outside the state. Yeah, you know, I think it's 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 yet another aspect of politics in Texas, you know, and it, and it's obviously wrapped up in the partisan, you know, the discussion of partisan competition where the narratives that people want to embrace or people want to embrace narratives that just don't admit of a lot of subtlety. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it sounds You know. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it may, you know, it may be that, you know, your preconceptions about, you know, Hispanic voting behavior, the ideological context and the cultural context of Hispanics needs a little more subtlety injected into it than you're willing to bring to the table. And look, I, I you know, that's going to sound like, you know, we are, but we're picking on the Democrats, frankly. Mm-hmm. But I think it's also true of Republicans who oh, yeah, often absolutely. are just like, well, you know, Hispanics are, you know, if I, you know. Socially this conservative. Is only, this is this is only yeah. This is only a slight exaggeration of you know. You know, they, you know Hispanics are a conservative people. And I'm yeah. like, just you know, easy. Is that Catholic. when you, <laughs> well, is that when you say, hey, by the way, Hispanics aren't a people? <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, for example, as, for example. <laughs> and I think that those who point out that a lot of the polling of Hispanics is very tentative, and you know that. You know, they're a hard to reach population in a lot of in a lot of cases that, you know, a lot of our samples are small. I mean, you know, the arguments kind of being made, you know, frankly, most recently by Beto O'Rourke in his critique of, you know, all polling, it would seem that are that is underest that he says is underestimating Democratic turnout. I would say, A, in this circumstance, maybe. Yeah. But B, you know, the assumptions about about Hispanic political behavior and Hispanic political identification 
you know, are, you know, require more research and require are yet to be demonstrated, you know, to be as clear as people make it out to be. Well, and I mean, ultimately, you know, you know where it needs to be demonstrated for Beto O'Rourke is it needs to be demonstrated in an actual election, not yeah. in your perception of how things might be going on the ground that it's not getting reflected in polling. We'll get to the difficulty of that, I, I think. Uh, but maybe we should cover a couple more topics before we, before yeah. we talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the other, you know, so then the other thing that it is coming up other than it, the Hispanic political behavior and probably more directly polling of Hispanics is what's going on in the suburbs. It seems like you can't really, and, and there's a good reason for this, you mm -hmm. can't really write a story about the 2020 election right now without making some reference to the suburbs. Now, part of this is completely justified because, you know, at, at the presidential level, sure, but particularly, in, and particularly in Texas, but in a lot of other places of the country, um, the suburban and exurban areas that, you know, around major urban areas are ground zero for much of the political conflict and for the most, and, and certainly in Texas for the most political, the most competitive races in Congress and in the state legislature um, because of, well, because of what is part of the debate. I mean, it seems to me this oversimplifies having just vilified people for oversimplifying. I'm going to oversimplify, but only for the sake of explanation. Um, that on one hand, there's a narrative that says, you know, this is mainly because, uh, conservative and Republican suburbanites are abandoning Donald Trump in droves. Mm -mm. And on the other <laughs> side that the demographics, that might be a little bit of a straw man, but, uh, and on the other side, the fact that the demographics of the suburbs are changing. And so, you know, that is affecting these races and that that is percolating up to some degree, and affecting the statewide and at that level national races as well. You know, I mean, I think I don't want to completely dismiss the abandoning of Donald Trump, but I, we're not seeing any evidence that that's happening in droves. Again, yeah, I want to add one more thing to your list, actually. And the other piece I'd add to it is that, you know, what the suburbs have going for them are, are two things that make them, you know, an object of attention within the state. I think what you're talking about definitely makes it an object of attention beyond, you know, within the state and beyond in terms of the congressional districts and things like that. Yeah. But the other thing is, is that, you know, the suburbs are, whereas, you know, the rural parts of the state are overwhelmingly Republican and the urban, you know, so the urban cores, you know, are where the Democrats are going to get the, the lion's share of their vote. The suburbs are a very high turnout and competitive part of the state. And, and so that's, a lot of votes. Yeah, and yeah, it's about <laughs> probably about a third of the electorate, you know, but also is competitive and they turn out at these very high rates. And so ultimately, you know, this is something that you know you'd expect partisans to be competing over because it is really where a lot of the competition right. is. It's where you're going to move margins. I mean, in rural parts of the state, Republicans are talking about like, you know, if you can think better worked at his 200, you know, you know, 54 county tour. Ultimately, how many net, you know votes did that net have in the rural parts of the state? Not many, because there aren't that many votes for Democrats. Republicans are going to you know do their best to mobilize all the votes they can in the rural parts of the states. Democrats are going to do the same thing in the urban core, and it's in the suburbs where the the fights really are going to take place to kind of define the race, and where really a lot of the money is going to be spent. But anyway, I mean, you know, I, you're right. And the main thing here about the suburbs that sort of you know I think is is most interesting is that it is it's all these. <laughs> things in some ways, right? I mean, it's both, you know, these sort of high rates, but the other thing is if you've been following Texas politics for years or some amount of time, or even just this kind of stuff generally, Texas's suburbs have been some of the fastest growing places in the country. And for the most part, you know, the fast growth is not due to people moving from California or New York or wherever. It's, it's people moving from other parts of the state 
And it's younger Texans. It's, it's people moving to be in and around the urban core, but who can't afford to live in the urban core. And so this is where, you know, again, we're in Austin. You can look at sort of the growth of Cedar Park and Leander and places like that. Um, and ultimately, if you think, look at the places that are growing so much, these are also overlapping with the congressional districts that are now being fought over, right. which were drawn 10 years ago when a lot of these places were significantly less populated. And so you're talking about places that are significantly more populated and they're populated with younger and more diverse Texans. And so it's a different suburb. And that goes back to your first point, which is, you know, I think a lot of people, when they start to see more competition, Texas congressional districts are real quick to say, oh, suburban Republicans are leaving Donald Trump. Well, there's no polling evidence for that. And in particular, you know, the, the particular instantiation of this was, well, you know, suburban women are leaving Trump. And I think, you know, implied when people would say that was, well, suburban white women. That's what we're talking about. And honestly, if you're talking about the aspect of the conservative or of the suburbs that are making uh, it more competitive, it's not older white women. It's younger non-white women. It's right. younger non-white men. That's what you're talking about. You're talking about a young, diverse Texas that is expanding yeah. these urban corridors and making these places more competitive. And probably, you know, and also I think with a dollop of younger college educated yeah. white people, right. That are, you know, those, would, those are some of the people that are leaving those urban cores I, and, you know, yeah, I think that's right. Well, yeah, that's right too. So, I mean, if you were a younger, if you're a younger person who was, you know, white or non-white, it doesn't really matter, but like a younger college educated person working in the urban core renting and you decide that you're at a point where you're ready to buy, you're not buying where you're renting right now. And that that's true almost anywhere in Texas and the major right. cities. And so that is pushing you into these areas, but it's also pushing you from being represented by Lloyd Doggett, you know, Democrat, right, whose district runs from Austin, San Antonio, to maybe living in Roger Williams' district or Mike McCall's district that's going to run from the suburbs of Houston out Chip Roy. Well, Chip Roy's that's an interesting district. It's, it's a, a little, little far, but it could be a San Antonio suburb. I'm not as familiar with the San Antonio geography to say so. But that's yeah, but that, you know, there's enough. There, you know, there's some there, there's there's some Aust there's Austinites in that district. That's true. That's true. Yeah, so, uh, plenty. Um, so so I, so I think you know I, I think you know the only thing I mean that kind of elaborates the two ideal points that I was caricaturing. But I, you know, the other thing that I would also you know add to that in terms of the fascination with the suburbs and the sense of surprise and the sometimes more intuitive rather than database assessments of this is that, you know, if you think back to the good analyses of the rise of the Republican party in Texas, mm -hmm. you know, that started, you know, this it's, it didn't all start, but it really took hold in the suburbs in Dallas suburbs and the suburbs were ground zero were, were, were the, the Petri dish in which Republican hegemony germinated over, mm -hmm. you know, the, the 60s, 70s, 80s. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think there's, there's also just a sense of like, you know, as you say, you know, that was, that was Republican. The suburbs in most places were Republican territory yeah. for a long time. And the fact that they're changing, I mean, I think people are are grappling for for you know for an explanation. Well, you know, and one thing I think that's really, and I like, I love that you brought that up because I, I bring this up with people who care. And now, just to really smash away your caricatures, one more, 
you know, with that, I mean, I think that there is a fundamental difference to to that change from a Democratic control state to a Republican control state that began in the suburbs, and the change that we're seeing now to a more competitive state from a, a Republican dominated state. And the difference was that you know, if you follow that history, is that when the suburbs were growing in Texas and becoming Republican strongholds, that was people leaving the city. There was a re- that was part of the white flight. That was a rejection of the urban in a lot of ways and movement towards a much more homogenous socioeconomically, certainly racially, uh, communities, right? What we're talking about now is completely different. We're talking about people coming from other parts of the state who are young, diverse, more likely to be college educated, and they're moving as close to the city as they can afford. And that's a very different sense of place. You know, it's a different movement of people, I think. And that's sort of what we're experiencing right now. And as they're doing that, they're not changing parties. Right. Right. Which, you know, in the initial in the initial growth of the Republican Party, there was a lot of party switching going on. And it, you know, really, you know, the, the, the big catalyst or the big watershed really is when Reagan runs for president in 1980 and, and they win Texas. And mm-hmm. there's, you know, I mean, it's a there's still some stop and start because the Republicans, you know, mount or the Democrats mount lots of rear guard actions. But, you know, you're really on the road to. The Texas of the early two of the first two decades of the of the 21st century at that point. And it's really that the suburbs are really a, a huge engine for that, you know, along with, you know, where, where Republicans still have urban strongholds like parts of Houston, parts of Dallas, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, all of this brings us then for just the last couple of minutes to focus a little bit on the early voting number and how we should not caricature that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I still think the ideal type caricatures of people's interpretations is useful before you decompose them. Yeah. Let me give you a, this is my method. So, I mean, a question that I've been, you know, sort of, I've answered a couple of times today was, you know, people sort of, you know, reporters, I shouldn't say, I shouldn't say not, not like just random people. Not real people. Well, they're real. You're not talking to real people. Well, not, <laughs> no, not like ordinary people, um, people who choose to be reporters who I love. Anyway, been talking to reporters today about the early vote number. There's been a lot of intrigue in the fence in the sense that if you kind of look at like, on the, I think on the New York times today, there was uh, an article with a nice data visualization that showed that Texas has the most votes cast so far of any state. Okay. Um, and people are kind of surprised by this because they know that Texas is a low turnout state, but also it's a big state and people are sort of interpreting this to mean, well, if there's high turnout, this must, must, must be good for Democrats. Now, I think earlier in the podcast, we said, well, you know, the actual underlying numbers are not so positive, I would say, based on what we know so far for Democrats. I mean, it certainly looks competitive, but we'll see. Um, but the bigger thing here is just to point out, you know, there's a reason that Texas has such a high early vote number relative to other states. And the main reason is the fact that there's not many other ways to vote here. Texas is one of five states that did not extend mail-in voting. And, and because of the way that elections are run in the U.S., basically every state has a, its own set of rules for how they're going to handle those mail-in ballots, which means that at this point in the process, we can't really compare how many mail-in ballots, let's say, you know, Texas has had compared to California, compared to Nevada, compared to somewhere else, because in some states they can't even like touch the mail-in ballots until, you know, election day or the day after or whatever. So we're comparing in-person votes. Well, Texas has had an extra week of, of early voting. So we've had, you know, we're on our third week of early voting and a lot of states do not have that. And there's no other way to vote safely if you're concerned about the coronavirus pandemic and you don't want to vote on election day. For most people, unless you're over the age of 65, you have a disability that's not related to the coronavirus, you know, 
indirectly, I guess, or you're not going to be in the county. The three ways you can vote by mail here. And so it's a little bit of a, I wouldn't even say, I mean, it's an apples to oranges comparison right now, number one. But number two, the other thing that I kind of keep reminding people about is if turnout is way up in Texas, turnout's probably going to be way up everywhere. You know, and I have these conversations with people all the time. Like there's nothing about this election that makes Texas or Texans specifically excited. People bring this up about young voters say, well, are young voters going to decide this election? And I say, well, look, you know, if young voters turn out at a really high rate, I, I kind of suspect that everybody turned out at a really high rate. Yes. And therefore their weight, you know, on the, on the outcome is going to be, you know, not inconsequential, but it's, it's going to be minimal relative to their increase in turnout. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing here. You know, I think there's a lot of excitement or not excitement. There's a lot of interest. Well, and it, and in, you know, there's and there's a lot of intensity. A lot of intensity, right? <laughs> right. And yeah. so, I mean, I think you know we should expect to see that. But I also would say that you know I'd be surprised if once all the votes are cast and counted, if you know Texas isn't kind of where it normally is. We should still see record turnout. We should still relative see to other of, states. Yeah, relative to other states, we should still see record turnout in Texas. We should, should still see uh, you know high record turnout for Texas. But I wouldn't be surprised if we were still in the bottom tier of states when it comes to turnout. That's just a guess. Uh, okay, everybody, you heard that. You can vilify Josh if that turns out to be wrong oh. for, for not having faith in the people of Texas. <laughs> well, no, I'm not having faith in the people who don't understand <laughs> that Texas doesn't I, you know, react to elections independent from everybody yeah, I else. Mean, I, I think there is something interesting when people call and I think a couple of cycles ago, you know, dined out on the line of, you know, Texas is still part of the United States. Yeah. And I think sometimes the, you, you know, one feels like gets the impression that people think Texas is in its own different tucked away in its own corner of the multiverse and not connected to the other trends. And I think, you know, that's and that's also, frankly, going to make, you know, diagnosing what's going on in Texas when this election is over, you know, tricky because, you know, say there is a national democratic landslide, well then Texas is going to be part of that larger macro level dynamic. And say in that, you know, I, I don't even want to broach the issue of, you know, whether Joe Biden wins Texas or doesn't win Texas. I'll just say, say, say Joe Biden wins by a large, by a large margin nationally, both in the popular vote and in the electoral college takes Texas, doesn't take Texas, doesn't really matter for what I'm going to talk about, I don't think. You know, we're still going to go into 2021 and 2022, and in particular the 2022 election cycle. And yes, we're talking about the 2022 election. We go into that in Texas in a situation in which you have a bunch of Texas statewide incumbent Republicans who still have dominance. And then at that point, we'll have a certain amount of structural dynamic in their favor in terms of what we know about the history of how parties, how the out of the White House parties do in the following midterm election. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And so, you know, I, I think to me, that's one of the biggest qualifiers when somebody says, well, so, you know, if text, you know, if the Democrats take the house, the state house and they flip another two to five or six or seven or however many, con you know, seats they wind up flipping in Congress. And I do think that there will be net gains in both chambers. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, will you finally, you know, will you finally admit that Texas is turning blue? No. I'm like, you know, no. No. <laughs> in fact, no. 
No. And, you know, that's why I think, you know, I mean, settle for being more competitive, guys. Yeah. I mean, as, and I don't mean that. Look, if you're a Democrat, it's your job to win elections. It's your job to turn Texas blue. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about from an analytical position or from Trump, from an interpretive position, you know, the state is already more competitive. If the state being more competitive is your criteria for turning blue, well, then OK. But I think that doesn't make any sense. And I think that embedded implication is often there or, you know, pick your code word. Is Texas turning blue? Is it a swing state? Is it in play? Is it, you know, all of those nuances, let's, you know, I feel like yeah. we need a glossary to clarify those and then try to enforce consistent usage among everyone. <laughs> I agree. I mean, I said, Damn you it. know, I, I've had the, yeah, no, I mean the, the. <laughs> and I'm semi joking, but I'm also, you know. No, because it's ridiculous because we do this all the time in every election cycle. I think we probably each receive somewhere between, you know, I don't know, 10 and a thousand calls that begin with. So is Texas turning blue this year? And it's like it doesn't work that way. It's you well, know, and I and I get and it. I, too. And I say the same thing as you, which is, you know, no, I don't think we're going to wake up on, you know, November 4th and say, whoa, Texas is blue. I think we're going to say, hey, it turned out that Texas is competitive, which is what it looked like. Yeah. You know. Um, maybe we should That's talk less about dramatic. It's, it's hard to sell your editors on that. Yeah. Can we talk about polls? I get it. And again, I also want to give our reporter friends some slack having kind of been jokey about them that, you know, I, I, I and for those of you going, Oh, come on, dude. I, you know, I realize that that is a ploy at times to elicit a response and we're all, I'm only talking about national outlets. I'm not talking about any Texas right. reporters. Right. <laughs> Our friends Can we talk about polling for a second? You think just for a second, we're now over 30 okay. minutes. I can, I, I think I can do it in less than 25 more minutes. <laughs> yeah, I, probably. Probably. <laughs> All right, real quick. I'll, I'll do this. You, real quick. Go so ahead. You, you pointed this I'll make out, some you know, kind of face or something. A, a bunch of t- polls came out, you know, really in the last few days, and they've ranged, you know, they all kind of covered the same time period, and they ranged from, uh, you know, Trump being up by, you know, a little more than five points to Biden being up as many as seven points, if you go back a little ways. But, you know, more like, let's say, Biden, you know, up a couple points here or there. So so a range of basically Trump plus five to Biden plus five, more or less, all within the last, you know, week or two of polling. And, you know, that might leave a lot of people saying, you know, well, say what that's a nicer <laughs> way of saying what I was going to say. But yes, yeah, you know. And the main thing here is I think it's all these things that we've been talking about, right? You know, if you think about the fact of, you know, we're in an election now where, you know, and I brought this up, I think, last week, but after the 2018 cycle, the the, the parlor game that was going on on Twitter was, you know, hey, in 2020, are we going to have more than 10 million voters? Now the question is, are we going to have 11 million or are we going to have 12 million? And that's kind of what we're, what the, what the, what the people who try to estimate these things are, are saying at this point. So this is, you know, a huge turnout election. Ultimately, you know, most of these polls that are trying to come up with, you know, these trial ballot results, you know, how much of the vote shared Biden has, how much of the vote shared Trump has, have to make some sort of a guess about what the voting electorate looks like. And you know what? That's really hard. And it's really, really hard when you're seeing, you know, millions more voters than you've ever seen. So we go back to some of these groups. I'll use Hispanics, I think, is the best example here of the groups that we've talked about, right? Here's a group that, you know, as we said, historically has, you know, supported Republican candidates anywhere from, you know, with 30% of the vote of their vote to, you know, as high as maybe 45% of their vote. But the assumption has always been that if you that these are going to be more conservative, older Hispanics potentially, and that, you know, what, you know, this is a low turnout group, which means that they vote lower rates than their share of the population. 
whites vote at higher rates than their share of the population, so they're more represented in the electorate. But this is a big question, and this was, you know, and it's funny because when, when I started doing this with you, you know, whatever, like ten years ago, people were always on this. They, you know, you'd put out a trial that was like, and someone would hit a table and say, "What share of your sample is Hispanic?" And they really wanted to know: was it, is it, is it plausible? Is it too low? <laughs> is it too high? And again, now compared to what, I don't know. But this was sort of something that we would do a lot. This cycle, I don't think anybody seems to care for some reason about this anymore. But I mean, this makes a difference. I mean, you know, and it makes a difference in two ways. Oh, you're thinking I'll get out soon. You know, one. No, 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 no. I, I, I want, I want to interject and say, oh, people care. <laughs> Maybe, well, <laughs> I, you know, I, we're we're not hearing. I, 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 we have not heard as directly about it. Yeah. As okay. we have in the past. Yeah. Fair enough. But I mean, the thing is, is that, you know, if you're thinking about, you know, you're conducting a poll and you're trying to estimate the votes, you know, the preferences of the voting electorate, does it matter if your electorate is 17% Hispanic versus 25% Hispanic? Well, well yeah, of, of course it does. But we don't know. And so there's two things going on here. One, we don't know what the composition of the electorate is going to look like based on age uh, and based on race and based on both of those things together, number one. And number two, we really don't know what effect it has when you bring in a ton more people into the electorate than you've ever seen. Ultimately, you know, so what I'd say is, is yeah, I mean, right now, based on what I know, I'd say, yeah, Hispanics are a group that goes 30 to 45 percent Democratic when they make up 17 to 22 percent. You meant Republican. I'm Republican, sorry. Yeah. When they make up 17 to 22 percent of the electorate. But what if they do make up 25, 26, 28 percent of the electorate this time because turnout's so high? What are the additional, you know, if you think about the additional, you know, 6% of the electorate that comes in who are Hispanic, do they look like the rest of the Hispanics who were voting before and were, you know, again, a, a Democratic group, but not overwhelmingly? Or are you bringing in young Hispanics who lean more Democratic and now all of a sudden the Republican vote share is at 28% or it's at that low mark of 30% and Democrats are getting 65, 70%. Yeah, or even vote. below the historic low mark or what we think is this. Whatever. Know. Yeah. I, yeah. And so, and, and the answer to that question is, I don't know. And the other answer to that question is nobody knows. <laughs> nobody knows. And that's the thing. So when you see, you know, four, you know, four polling results come out that say, you know, that, sh that basically show different results. You know, one of the things you can do is you can go and look into the results and say, well, what was the vote share among Hispanics? And what you'll see, is you'll see different vote share breakdowns amongst Hispanics, right? Um, you and so, a lot of variance among the different results. Yeah. Right. And I mean, not to get out and I'll mean, get out of this point and maybe you'll come back to it or maybe we'll just end it. But I mean, the other piece to this, I think that's important to remember is, you know, polling results are, are estimates. And when you're trying to estimate a race that appears to be, you know, 50-50, 51-49, 52-48, you know, even really up to like 55-45, you're talking about a close race. It's not easy. It's not easy to say this person's definitely going to get 51% of the vote and this person's definitely going to get 49% of the vote. It just doesn't really work that way. And I think that's something that, you know, I think people also have to kind of get a hold on, which is that we have a very fluid and very, I would say a very fluid and dynamic electorate in Texas and more so over the last two cycles. So it's not as easy as, you know, it's easy for someone like better work to say, well, you're not getting the right people. And I would say, who are the right people? I don't know. And I don't think I don't think that anybody really does until we get through this election cycle and we see what the electorate. Actually well, I, like. I, I think I think more importantly, who are the right people and how do you know? Because he'll have a very ready answer for who the right people are. Right. The how do you know is the. Is <laughs> but the, the how do you know, I think, is the main thing. And I, I you know, I, I we got to close it out. But I mean, you know, what I would say is, you know, and it's, and it's something I think, you know, you put succinctly, you know, at one point in, in an earlier <laughs> podcast, which is. You know, we're talking, you know, I think we typically 
focus on one estimate when we have these questions, when we get these questions about, well, what, you know, what was the breakdown of your sample? Mm -hmm. Right. And that's always an estimate. Mm -hmm. Right. But it's an estimate of an estimate. It's an estimate that then feeds into another estimate, which are, is our estimate of the underlying population. Right. right. And sometimes, you know, a lot about the underlying population that you're trying to sample. Ideally. And in this case, we don't. Right. Right. And so, you know, the uncertainty baked into this is, is always there and we always try to talk about it. And I think, you know, it's incumbent on us to talk about it in more depth, but also more clearly to people. And I, you know, that was one of the takeaways of, of 2016. Right. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, the overall failure to talk about how this exercise works in terms of polling, but also more broadly how modeling worked. And we don't want to get into that. And, and at some more metaphysical level, what probability is got us into a lot of trouble in 2016 that we're still paying for mm -hmm. because multiple debriefs, multiple analyses, hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of discussion later, we both still get calls going. So let's start with why 2016, all the polling was wrong. Yep. <laughs> yep. Can you hear and, my sigh? And that sigh was audible. And on that <laughs> note, <laughs> thanks a lot for listening and for staying for the extra bit. Thanks to Josh for being here. Thanks as always to our terrific production staff in the College of Liberal Arts and the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the University of Texas at Austin. And thanks again to you for listening. Uh, I suspect if you're listening, you probably already have. But if you haven't, get on out there and vote. And we will talk to you next week. And the next time we all talk, we'll know a lot more, but have probably a whole new set of questions. Thanks for listening to the Second Reading Podcast. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.